How's everybody doing? We ready to get in the book of Colossians? Do you know where we are right now? We're in chapter 3. We are breaking in to chapter 3 in this four-chapter letter, 95-verse letter. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Colossians 3. If you're using the Blue Bible, we provide it's on page 984. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 4. And at this point, as I already said, four chapters in this letter. So we're, we're breaking into chapter 3. We're entering into the second half of Paul's letter. And this second half consists primarily of his practical exhortations to the Colossians in light of his teaching on the supreme person and sufficient work of Christ, which we covered in the first half of his letter. That's what we've been studying. That's what we've been reading about. Christ is supreme over all, and he's sufficient for all things. And before Paul got to these practical exhortations that we're going to see, Paul addressed the greatest spiritual threat that the Colossians were facing, and that was the false teaching that was in and around their region that was gaining traction in the area. Now, the goal of Paul's ministry to the Colossians was to make the Word of God, this is what he said, to make the Word of God fully known to them in order that they would go on to maturity in Christ and remain firm in their faith. He wanted to make the Word of God fully known to them so that they would move on to maturity in Christ while remaining firm in their faith. That was Paul's goal for them. But... You had these false teachers. They were influential. They were very intelligent. They seemed very wise. And their influence was working against this goal that Paul had for them, which was the Lord's goal for them. So as we saw in chapter 2, Paul warned the church not to be led astray by the false teaching. No matter how well-spoken how knowledgeable, how religious, and how disciplined the proponents of this teaching were. Paul exposed them as unspiritual men whose spiritual lives were actually a sham and whose devotion to God was actually empty. He did not want the Colossians to be deluded by them, He did not want them to be impressed by them, and he didn't want them to be intimidated by them. Their religious practices had no spiritual substance, and they were of no value in stopping the indulgence of sinful desire. They had no value in helping one move on towards godliness, towards godly living, towards honoring and pleasing the Lord. In other words, their so-called devotion to God did not lead to true spiritual empowerment and godly living, as they were claiming. So, having exposed the error and deception propagated by the false teachers, which he did in chapter 2, Paul then began to instruct the Colossians towards true devotion to God. So, he exposed empty devotion, false spirituality, and then now he's going to instruct them towards true devotion, true spirituality, which in its essence is Christ-centered living. What does true devotion to God look like? What does true spirituality look like? A spiritually empowered life. What does Christ 
Christ-centered living. It's living in the light of the reality that Christ is God the Son, the preeminent and all-sufficient one, through whom we have been forgiven and reconciled to God, yes, in whom we have eternal life and the hope of glory, and from whom we receive endless grace and wisdom and empowerment for life and godliness here and now. During our few remaining days in this fallen world, he's given us life, and now he is, he is our source of life. He is our sufficiency. He is our wisdom here and now while we remain to live lives worthy of him. So starting in chapter 3 and continuing until his final greetings in chapter 4, Paul gave exhortation after exhortation in order to direct the Colossians in Christ-centered living. What does that look like? He wanted to move them towards that. Here's true devotion. It's Christ-centered living, and he's going to spell it out for them. He's going to describe it to them. He's going to call them to action. And keep in mind, so as we get into the second half of the letter, keep in mind that these exhortations from Paul flow out of his primary exhortation, his primary command, which we've already seen. We've already looked at. He gave it back at the beginning of chapter 2. He said, As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so keep walking in him. That is, keep living your life out in him. Remaining rooted in him and being built up in him. As you received him, so keep walking in him. That's the primary command. And so what we're going to see then is what that looks like in detail in the life of the Christian. We're going to see what walking in Christ involves. So how are we to live out our faith in Jesus Christ the Lord? Well, three weeks ago, we read ahead, and we saw that we don't do it through, what, religious rituals and ceremonies and regulations. That's not how you walk in Christ. That's not the means to walking in Christ. The Christ-centered life isn't filled with rituals, ceremonies, and regulations. Paul said that these things are primitive and elementary. We don't walk in Christ by seeking out mystical experiences, subjective, mystical, spiritual experiences. Paul said that such a preoccupation with mystical experiences, stems from a sensuous mind, actually. And it indicates that one's not holding fast to Christ. If you have Christ, what need do you have to be seeking out some kind of divine experience, heavenly experience that's personal, that's private, some kind of communication from God? You have Christ. So those who seek those things out, Paul says it's a sensuous mind, one not holding fast to Christ any longer. So how then are we to live out our faith in Jesus Christ the Lord? We're told to keep walking in Christ. Here's how Paul begins his series of practical exhortations for Christian living. Here's the first thing he has to say in this matter. Starting in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Notice that in his series of practical exhortations for Christian living, where does Paul begin? He begins with the mind. He begins with the mind. Our thinking needs to be addressed first if we are to live in a manner worthy of Christ so that we remain rooted in him and are being built up to full maturity in him. We need to start with our minds. What we essentially see Paul saying in this passage is that we need to actively be putting our earthly lives in heavenly perspective. One commentator puts it this way, Paul begins by calling the readers to that preoccupation with heavenly reality that is the hallmark of true spirituality and the starting point of practical holiness. He addresses the mind. So in verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, When Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, he's obviously not referring to the bodily resurrection of those who are in Christ, is he? He's not referring to the bodily resurrection, which is an event which was and is still yet to come. It's in the future. Rather, he is referring back to the Colossians' spiritual resurrection, their spiritual resurrection which occurred when God, by his Spirit, gave them a new heart so that they believed the gospel and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They were spiritually made alive. They were spiritually raised. This is the new birth. The new birth. And in this moment, when when God causes one to be born again, the redeemed sinner who was once spiritually dead is made alive and joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit. By virtue of our spiritual union with Christ then, though we have remained physically alive, we who once, or who we once were, who we once were, that person died. And we have been raised to a new life. So though we remain physically alive, what what spiritually occurred is that who, if you are in Christ, who you once were died. The old you is gone. And you have been raised to newness of life. If one has been born again, there will certainly be a change in life, a change in direction, a transformation. There will be fruit. You are a new creation in Christ. The old you has died, and now you have been raised with Christ, and you are raised with Christ. You have spiritual life in him. So not only did Christ's death become our death, when we think about his saving work on our behalf, We see that he died once for all, for those who would believe on him. He took our death in our place for our sins, right? But not only did his death become our death, but his resurrection has become ours as well. Those who are born again through faith in Christ share in his risen and glorified life. Our physical bodies will one day die. Some of them are progressively deteriorating right now, right? 
We're reminded of that every day. So our physical bodies will one day die, and then one day they will be resurrected unto glory at the appearing of Christ to gather his church to himself. We even saw that mention of the appearing of Christ in Paul's letter to Titus during our scripture reading. However, our spirits, the, the, our immaterial selves, we are body and soul, our spirits have been raised to life with Christ already. And we are to be living here and now in light of that reality. So this, this earthly body, this physical body that's deteriorating will one day die. But spiritually we have been made alive and we're to live in light of that reality. Paul said in his letter to the Christians in Rome that we have been raised with Christ in order that we might walk in newness of life. And here in Colossians, Paul prefaces his practical exhortations with this reasoning. You have been raised with Christ. This is how he starts it out. You have been raised with Christ. One commentator says this, Because of our identification with Jesus, we have been granted new life, which gives us the capacity to live a new kind of life. That new kind of life, will be described in detail in the following verses. And really, all through chapter 3 and moving on into chapter 4, the new, this new life is described in detail. So in light of the new life that we have in Christ, how are we to walk in that newness of life? How are we to do it? How, how do we go about living in a manner worthy of him in this fallen world until he returns or calls us home? How are we to do it? Paul says... Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's how he starts out his explanation. And the command here in verse 1 is in the present tense. It's a, it's a call to a continuous action. Be seeking the things that are above where Christ is. You are to be seeking these things. In other words, be striving for devoting serious effort towards the things that are important to God, the things that he delights in and are of value beyond this present age in which we live. Those are the things we're to be seeking. And this is reminiscent of Christ's instruction to his disciples that they should seek first and foremost God's kingdom and his righteousness and that they should lay up for themselves treasures in heaven and be rich towards God. That's to be the priority of those who follow Christ. Those who are true worshipers of God. So when Paul says, be seeking the things above where Christ is, he does not mean that we should completely check out and have no connection to or concern for the world in which we live. Right? He doesn't mean... Um, seek those things and seek nothing in this world, have nothing to do with this present life. So don't completely check out. Rather, what Paul means is that we should live in this world in light of the world to come. That is, in light of the coming kingdom of God, in, of which we have been made citizens. You've been made citizens of his kingdom. You're to live in light of that. You're to live for that kingdom, not the present kingdoms of the earth. You're to live for the world that's come, not this present world that's passing away. 
That's where our eternal home is in the age to come, right? Your eternal home is in the age to come. It's not here and now. How depressing it would be if that it was true, if it was here and now. Our wealth and possessions and status in this life will not remain. Those are important things. They have some place in our life, right? But they are not to be sought after as if they are the ultimate things that we need or as if they're going to last forever. Wealth, possessions, status in life. All that will not remain. John, the Apostle John wrote this in his first epistle. Along, you know, the same, same idea in mind. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And listen to what he says. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what are your priorities at this point in your life? What are your priorities? What are your goals? What things do you take most delight in? What things are you pursuing and diligently applying yourself to here and now at this point? Are these things subject to and shaped by things above? Are they subject to and shaped by God's good, pleasing, and perfect will? Are your priorities and pursuits subject to and shaped by the things that are pleasing to Christ and the Father? So what do you see when you honestly examine your life, when you ask these questions? What do others see when they observe your lifestyle and behavior? What do they see? What are you seeking? What are you pursuing? What are you cherishing above all else? What, do, uh, what does the world at large see when they view your Facebook profile or any other kind of presence or activity that you may have on the Internet? What do they see? Do they see someone who is truly seeking the things that are above Paul says, if you were raised with Christ, be seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why should we be seeking the things that are above? Because if you have truly been born again, then you have been delivered from bondage to sin and from the power of Satan, and you have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. You are a new creation. You remain in the world, but you are no longer of the world. And the one who saved you, the one who gave you life, the one to whom you now belong, your deliverer, your redeemer, your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, where is he? He's exalted in heaven, exalted to the highest place of honor, to the loftiest position of prominence, to the greatest seat of power in all creation. He is seated at the right hand of God. That means all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. 
He is God the Son, whom God the Father appointed heir of all things. Where Christ is, is where our greatest aspirations and affections ought to be and must continue to be. One commentator says this, Preoccupation with the eternal realities that are ours in Christ is to be the pattern of the believer's life. By the way, usually when we see the word preoccupation, we think, that's, we think of it in a negative way. Oh, he's totally preoccupied. She's so preoccupied with, with this or this or this. But we are called to act. There's a sanctified preoccupation. It's to be preoccupied with the things above. Paul is not advocating, he says. He's not advocating a form of mysticism. Paul just denounced that, right? This isn't seek the things that are above. Let's start a monastery. Let's just study the word of God all day in a cave and get really spiritual, connect with God in isolation, cut off from the world. That's not spirituality. So Paul is not advocating a form of mysticism when he's saying be seeking the things that are above. Rather, he desires that the Colossians' preoccupation with heaven govern their earthly responses. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there and his purposes, plans, provisions, and power. It is also to view the things, people, and events of this world through his eyes and with an eternal perspective. So how do we get ourselves to where we ought to be in seeking the things that are above? We hear the command, be seeking the things that are above. How do you do that? How do you get yourself to be doing that, to have that priority in life, to have that characterize your living? How do we get to the point of being righteously preoccupied with Christ in his coming kingdom? How do we do it? Paul tells us how in verse 2, in which he says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We won't be seeking the things that are above unless we are actively and persistently setting our minds on them rather than the things that are on earth. You won't be seeking the things above if your mind is anchored down here in this present life in your immediate circumstances in which you get like a spiritual tunnel vision. This is it. All my problems, this is the world. I need to open that up, my perspective, set my mind on things above that I might actually live in light of the reality that is mine in Christ and the world to come. Again, the command here, Paul uses this present tense command, so the idea you don't just do it once. It is an ongoing activity. Be setting your minds on things that are above. And this then involves the discipline of your mind. You're not just naturally going to do that. You have to train your mind, discipline your mind. Train it to think heavenward, uh, direct it towards the things that are pleasing to Christ. It is an active work. Our minds are not, not naturally set on things above, are they? Is that the first thing when you wake up in the morning? You just open your eyes like heaven, Christ, his coming kingdom. But here's the thing. The more we're setting our mind on things above, the more it will actually bleed into like all of our thoughts in, in every circumstance. 
So our minds are not naturally there. What do we need to do? We must work to get them there. We must work to get them there, to set our minds on things above. This requires more than our own willpower. As some of Paul is saying, you know, just really, just really try, focus. Heaven over earth, heaven over earth, spirit over body, kingdom over this present world. It's not like just some, some personal effort exerted from your own strength. We must work to get them there, but it's more than our, our own willpower requires your effort, absolutely, but we need more than that. It requires the, the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Okay, you've been born again. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. So tap into his power. Well, how do I do that? Well, we tap into his power through the inspired, infallible, inerrant scriptures, the word of God. How do you, how do you live a spiritually empowered life? How, how are you empowered by the Spirit? The Spirit uses the word of God to empower you. So we need to inform and sanctify and renew our minds with the life-giving and life-sustaining Word of God. Remember, Paul prayed that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prayed that their minds would be filled with the knowledge of all God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You see, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to propel us towards godly living, righteous living, conformity to the likeness of Christ. That was Paul's prayer. And by the way, as their minds are filled with the, all spirit, the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and they're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, what will characterize a life worthy of the Lord is one in which someone is continually increasing in the knowledge of God. So it's not a one-time thing or a thing that we get to a certain point of our understanding. We are to immerse ourselves in the word of God to propel us towards living in a manner worthy of the Lord. And as we do that, we will continually increase in the knowledge of God. That's what continues to sustain us and mature us. So how we live and speak and act is determined by how we think. And how we think is determined by what we are filling our minds with, right? So your, your behavior, your lifestyle, your speech, your actions all come out of, well, come out of the heart, the inner man, the mind. And how we think, what's in there is determinable. What are we filling it with? What are you filling it with? What are you filling your mind with, that is what you will be setting your mind on, in other words. We need to have a heavenly perspective, and that is formed by and cultivated by God's written word. Now, notice in verse 2 that Paul essentially gives two commands, doesn't he? There's essentially two there. What we are to be doing and what we are to not be doing. Be setting your minds on the things that are above and at the same time, do not be setting your minds on things that are on earth. So it's a both and. One commentator wrote this, We must not dote upon them. We must not dote upon the things that are on the earth, nor 
expect too much from them, that we may set our affections on heaven. For heaven and earth are contrary one to the other. And a supreme regard to both is inconsistent. And the prevalence of our affection to one will proportionally weaken and abate our affection to the other. Well said. The Lord said in his explanation of his parable of the sower, you remember that parable? The sower? And again, he's talking about, he is talking about the, the power of the gospel, and he's talking about what true salvation looks like, you know, those who hear the word of God and the different ways they respond to it. And ultimately, there is the one who, who has fertile soil, and the word of God takes root in their heart, and then there's fruit that comes out of it. That's, that's new life. That's the work of God causing the word to be implanted for them to have new life by believing the gospel. But there's, there's a principle we can draw from his explanation of the parable, parable of the sower, and it's this. In one of his explanations about the rocky soil, he does make this statement about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. He says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches will choke the word of God in your life and make it unfruitful. So moving beyond the illustration about choking it out, meaning the gospel never took root in your life, for the believer, who, the, the one who has placed their faith in Christ, who has been born again, in their life, as they're continuing in Christ, if they're setting their mind on the cares of the world and, and even riches, possessions, material things, the cares of the world, it too will choke the word of God in the believer's life and make it unfruitful. The one who is a Christian, who's not bearing much fruit, is the Christian who's setting his or her minds on this present world. So is your mind so consumed with earthly, material, and temporal matters that your affection for and devotion to Christ has grown cold? Has your mind been filled so much with earthly things that it has become close to them and distant from Christ? You ever thought about that? You feel spiritually cold? You feel distant from God? What have you been setting your mind on? What has been your preoccupation? Do the concerns of this life dominate your mind so that there's no room to see things in the light of eternity and the coming kingdom of God and the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ? You forget those things because the concerns of this life are so dominating your thinking. Have you been preoccupied with family, with work, with social engagements to the point that fellowship with Christ and his church has become an afterthought to you? Is your earthly family more important than the family of God, which you have become a part of? Again, work, family, social engagements, they're not bad things. But have they become the priority? over fellowship with Christ and his church? Have recreation, entertainment, news, and or politics filled your mind so much that you've begun to live as if this present life is all there is? 
Read the news. Keep your eyes on the news. Read it every day and see what, see what it does to your perspective on the world and your thinking. Immerse yourself in politics. See what it will do to your perspective on this life. We must keep in mind that this fallen world in which we live is not only filled with innumerable temptations to sin. It is. But it's also filled with constant distractions from Christ, the one for whom all things exist. This present world is fallen and corrupt and evil, but it's filled not just with temptations, but distractions from Christ. In fact, when we fill our lives and thus our minds with the distractions, you know what we do? We lead ourselves into temptation. Away from Christ and into temptation. We lead ourselves away from seeing and experiencing the goodness and power and wisdom and sufficiency of the Lord if we set our mind on all the distractions. So Paul says we must be preoccupied with, immersed in, and consumed by the things that are above, not things that are on earth. One commentator says this, this This does not mean that believers are to live in a kind of mystical fog or neglect the affairs of earth with endless contemplation of eternity. This means that believers are not to be concerned only with the trivialities of the temporal. We are to be preoccupied with the things that get top billing in heaven. Heavenly values are to capture our imaginations, emotions, thoughts, feelings, ideas, and actions. And how do you cultivate that? By immersing yourself in the word of God and having it dwell in you richly. Now Paul explains in verse 3 then why the things that are on earth and the temporal concerns of daily life should not dominate our minds. That's the last thing he said. Not the things on earth. Don't be seeking the things that are on earth. His reasoning, verse 3, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if you have been truly born again and reconciled to God through faith in Christ, then you have died, and your life is no longer bound to this present world. Remember, what's happening to this present world? It's passing away. If you're in Christ, are you going to be passing away? You will not. You have the hope of glory, eternal life. You have been raised with Christ, as Paul said in verse 1. You have been born from above, and the new life that you have been given comes from and is hidden with or kept secure with Christ. Consider what the Lord Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Your life is hidden kept secure with Christ in God. If you truly have been born again, then your life is hidden with Christ in God. The things on earth which are destined to perish are not your life. 
Do you believe that? Money is not your life. Material possessions are not your life. Even family is not your life. Christ is your life. And he is seated in heaven at the right hand of God. Therefore, your life here and now should be lived heavenward. Other things in life, even good things, will demand your attention, but don't allow yourself to get to the point of thinking that your life depends on them. And then Paul gives a word of encouragement to the Colossians in verse 4. What does he say? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Seeking the things that are above and setting your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, may seem strange to those who are outside of Christ. Living that way may seem strange. Living with this heavenly perspective may seem wasteful to those who are living their best lives now. Why are you doing that? Why are you making the choices you're making? Why are you choosing that lifestyle? You're missing out. I'm living my best life now. You should too. You may be, again, if you are seeking the things above, setting your mind on things above, not things on earth, you may be dismissed or despised or ridiculed or even persecuted. But Paul says, your consolation is coming. You will be comforted. People may accuse you, saying that your devotion to Christ and preoccupation with that which concerns him is not doing any earthly good. You're too heavenly minded and you're not being any earthly good. You hear that saying? So heavenly minded, no earthly good. What are we reading right here? If we're to do any earthly good, we need to be heavenly minded. People may be accusing you of that, though, saying that your preoccupation with these things is doing no earthly good. But Paul says, guess what? Your vindication is coming. When Christ appears, you will be vindicated. You will appear with him in glory. We don't see it now. We don't see it how. But that is our hope, and we look ahead in faith. Our vindication will come. This is the return of Christ, by the way, for his church, this appearing. Like I said, we even, we even saw that in Titus chapter 2, the appearing of Christ. And the return of Christ for his church, we'll, we'll get to this point when Jeremy's working through 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, but it's the point at which when Christ appears, the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are still alive will be caught up and transformed in an instant and we will all be glorified. At his appearing, Christ will snatch us away from the earth and take us to be with him in heaven until the appointed day comes for him to return to establish his everlasting kingdom on the earth. He goes to, he's gone to prepare a place for us. He will take us to be with him where he is. But yet we will also come with him when he comes to set up his kingdom and will reign with him upon this earth. Similarly to Paul... The Apostle John also pointed to our future glorification at the appearing of Christ as a motivation to faithfulness and holy living here and now. And our brother Eric just 
He referenced verse 3. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 John chapter 3, where the apostle writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see that? So we don't, we don't see it now. But we know that when Christ returns, we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. We'll be glorified. And if we have that hope, John says that hope purifies. How does this glorious hope purify us? It causes us to seek the things that are above and to set our mind on things that are above. In other words, to live life here and now in light of our future glory in Christ. I mean, if, if your glory, glory is guaranteed, you're a citizen of the everlasting kingdom of God, Christ will return, you will be comforted, you will be vindicated. How's that going to change your life now? That would affect the way you live in this world. That would affect your priorities, what you seek, what you set your mind on. Our glory is not the vain glory of this world. People seek glory. They seek it in so many ways. But that's not the kind of glory. Earthly glory is not what we're looking for. We have glory, and it's not the vain glory of this present world. It's the glory of our Savior. Our glory is His glory, our Savior, the Lord, for whom we wait, and one day whom we will see as He truly is, and we will be like him. In the meantime, in the meantime, we must begin to be conformed to his likeness here and now. From the inside out, by immersing our minds in his life-giving word and seeking the things that are above. So that's how the Christ-centered life begins and continues. Paul laid it out right here at the beginning of chapter Three, and he's going to go on, and we're going to see that, again, this is not some mystical kind of lifestyle. This is a very earthly, practical, earthly in the sense that we're here. It involves our circumstances, the people in our lives, our situations. It is very practical and relevant to here and now. And we're going to see that it involves life in the church, the local church in the household, at the workplace, all those things, living in light of our future glory will impact all of those things. So we need to live life with that heavenly perspective. And I wanted to share one thing in closing. There's a, um, a book that is slated to be the next one for the women's group. And Jeremy was had read through it, kind of scanned through the content and everything. And He'd gotten to this point, and in light of our discussion about this passage, and he knows the passage I'm on, and we're talking about these things, setting our mind on things that are above, and the importance of the scriptures in our life, and our, what, how that should uh, impact our pursuits and our priorities here and now. He shared this uh, portion of the book with me, and I, I figured it'd be, I just took it as a sign of God's providence to share it with you right now. So, Men, we won't be reading through this book, so this is, this is great. I get to share with you. We wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. And then the women, spoiler alert, this is actually the very end of it. It's like the last two pages. But it, it's interesting how it is, it is exactly on this subject. Um, 
and in even thinking about the scripture reading. We don't plan these things. This is the Spirit of God telling you something. Titus chapter 2. Grace of God has appeared. You know, we've been redeemed from all lawlessness to walk in newness of life, waiting patiently for the coming of our Lord. And all before that, the, the things that are called to, how men and women are to conduct themselves in the present time as they wait. Let me share this with you. Keep in mind, this is, this is, this is a woman's book, so it'll come out, you know, the things that are discussed, you just, you know, men, you can apply to manly things too. Um, and it's on my phone because I didn't want to have to just type this out by hand. I, I confess I was a little lazy this week on that matter. But you ready? Here we go. Here's what she writes. Good words of insight. We become what we behold. Do you believe that? Whether passively or actively, we become conformed to the pattern we spend the most time studying. Upon what is your gaze fixed? Your bank account? Your bathroom scale? Men, am I right? (laughs) Your child's next accolade? Your dream kitchen? Right, men? (laughs) The latest blockbuster TV series? Your phone? It is the nature of this life that we must fight daily to make room in our line of sight for that which transcends. Many things hold a legitimate claim on our attention. But when our eyes are free from the two-year-old or the spreadsheet or the textbook or the dinner dishes, where do we turn them? Right? So you see that? We have responsibilities. And God cares about these things. He, he, he says, you be faithful in those things I've given you. They're stewardship. Be faithful in your responsibilities. But when they're freed up, where do we turn? Where do we turn them, our eyes? If we spend our time gazing only on lesser things, we will become like them, measuring our years in terms of human glory. But here is good news. The one whom we most need to behold has made himself known. He has traced with a fine hand the lines and contours of his face. He has done so in his word. We must search for that face. Though babies continue to cry, bills continue to grow, bad news continues to arrive unannounced. Though friendships wax and wane, Though both ease and difficulty weaken our grip on godliness. Though a thousand other faces crowd close for our affection, and a thousand other voices clamor for our attention. By fixing our gaze on that face, we trade mere human glory for holiness. There are really only two possibilities in this life. Be conformed to the image of God, or be conformed to the pattern of this world. No doubt you want the former. But be warned, the word is living and active. It will conform you by dividing you. And in the dividing, miracle of miracles, it will render you whole. We become what we behold. I don't know about you, but I have much becoming to do. There is a vastness between what I am and what I ought to be but it is a vastness able to be spanned by the mercy and grace of him whose face it is most needful for me to behold. 
in becoming or in beholding God, we become like him. So make a faithful study of the one you want to imitate as a dearly loved child. Study everything that makes God wonderful and mimic your, to your heart's delight as the joyful expression of your reciprocal love for him. Respond as David did. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. To the one that seeks him, the Lord is pleased to lift up his countenance, both now and forever. Study well the contours of his face. Let gazing on his loveliness touch mind and heart and be transformed. So there you go. I just read the end of book, the book for you ladies. But it's far out enough. It'll be a great refresher when the time comes again when you read through it. But I thought that was a fitting closing to this passage. So remember what Paul says. And I think this is a worthy passage. Maybe having a placard in your house because I need this reminder. If you've been raised with Christ, be seeking the things that are above. Be setting your mind on things that are above, not on things that are earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. It is living and active. It does cause us to examine ourselves. It itself does examine us and reveal to us ways that we must put off and the ways that we must put on. And and this morning, I pray that for all of us, Father, that you would help us to examine our own hearts, our own lives, and to really be honest with what our priorities have been, what our focus has been, what we've been giving our minds to, what we've been filling them with. Let this be a a turning point for us that we may uh, apply uh, these commands, that we might submit to them, Lord, that we might truly be a people seeking things concerning you and your coming kingdom, concerning our Lord and Savior who has redeemed us, who has given us the hope of glory, Jesus Christ. May we be seeking those things by setting our minds on those things by your word. May we cherish it. Help us to orient our lives towards you that we might be glorifying you on this earth in this present life, that we might actually be truly doing earthly good by representing you here and now and living the new risen life that we have and proclaiming the name of Christ to those around us and being an encouragement, an instrument of mercy in your hands towards those who are also in Christ, that we might continually build one another up in love and in the faith and our knowledge of you, that we might be pure and ready for the return of your son as the bride of Christ, that we might be pure and ready for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.